You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. You can call me Bruce. Bruce Nolan is standing by. Hey, wacky Bruce. Coming to you from an undisclosed location, this is the Bruce Exclusive. And here's your host, Bruce Nolan. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to another edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. Well, sure glad that's over with. Exercised some demons, did we? Last weekend, as the Buffalo Bills defeated the Indianapolis Colts in the wild card round of the 2021 NFL playoffs. And the Hail Mary got knocked down. So some demons exercised there. They got out of the first round of the playoffs. Some demons exercised there. And I've mentioned this before on this podcast, but I will mention it again. That victory by itself saved me hours upon hours upon hours of time. This offseason, talking about Sean McDermott not being Marvin Lewis. You know, an interesting thing happens when you become a content creator and you start to have to deal with and play sort of whack-a-mole with the narratives that pop up from the Bills fan base or from whatever fan base it is of the team that you cover. You start to see things through a different lens, And it's not just the way that this makes you feel emotionally. It's the way that these same actions will make other people feel that will then generate talking points and discussions that you will have to address moving forward. And one of the narratives I was not looking forward to talking about is, is Sean McDermott not a playoff coach? Can he never win a playoff game? I was not looking forward to discussing that this offseason. So that victory saved me a lot of time. And on a purely selfish level, I am happy about that. But we're going to talk about it because there are narratives that come out of these games. It's a little different for playoff football because really it boils down to on to the next. And there's a lot less discussion about the past game and a lot more discussion about the next game. And that really kind of fits in with something we've been talking about for multiple years on these podcasts that you have sat down and consumed with me. And that is that in the regular season, how and why you win are more predictive 
of future wins than the fact that you won. And we've talked about this ad nauseum this year. But playoff football is a little weird because if you don't win, you go home. And also, the teams you play are very, very different week in and week out. The Ravens are very different from the Colts. There's not a lot you can take from the Colts game and apply to the Ravens game. But when you have 16 consecutive games, there are trends and narratives that form and ebb and flow. It's a little different in the playoffs. Not that it's its own unique season, because it's not. But we don't spend a ton of time thinking and digesting the why we won the last game because we're just happy we won it and we get to move on, survive, and advance. But there are some narratives that have come out of the Indianapolis Colts game that I want to get into. Specifically, I want to get into some of the offensive play calling that has been sort of a discussion. Specifically, the over-reliance on the run game or the perceived over-reliance on the run game. So the Bills called 41 passes and 16 runs. So on the surface, that doesn't really look like an over-reliance on the run game at all. So I don't think it's accurate to say the Bills ran too much. I do, however, have differing sub-opinions. Let's start with the quarterback runs. I have no problem with the quarterback runs. The Colts were staying in too high, even against empty sets. And if you stay in too high looks against empty sets, the box numbers are going to be in your advantage. When there is an RPO called, or a zone read called, or something that requires a quarterback to make a binary decision based on alignment or based on numbers, we always want the quarterback to make, quote-unquote, the right decision. It's the same thing when it comes to box count with the run. If you have an RPO called, and the RPO is swing pass to the running back or quarterback draw, which we saw at times against the Colts, and the running back goes in motion out, and the linebacker follows him, and gives you positive numbers in the box, then what do you want the quarterback to do? Do you want him to not do it so that your run numbers are better? Josh Allen picked up a lot of yards on plays like that. He was the leading rusher for this team when the traditional runs, with Zach Moss specifically, were not working overly well. So when you have scenarios like that happen, you want to get positive yards, right? So I have no problem with the quarterback run because, in fact, we've seen this before from this team against traditionally sound and strong run defenses. Think back to week one against the New York Jets. I know that was a really long time ago. But do you remember how often Josh Allen carried the ball against the Jets? It was a big point of discussion coming out of that game. Why are we using our quarterback like this? And I got on this podcast and I said, if the traditional running game is not working and you don't think it's going to work because you have an exceptionally stout front line for the Jets and mind you, the Colts have an exceptionally stout front line as well, then sometimes you need the advantages that come from getting an extra blocker relative to the runner, which is what you get when you use quarterback runs. 
So I have no problem with the quarterback run game. The fact that the Bills didn't continuously and repeatedly try to smash their heads with traditional runs against a very stout Indianapolis front four is good for me. 10 total runs from the running backs for the Buffalo Bills. I'm fine with that. You want to generate a run game, but you want to do it effectively. So let's not beat our head against the wall with something that's probably not going to work. And it's certainly not going to work as well relative to the other two options, which are run the quarterback or throw the ball. So I have three potential options here. Run a running back, run a quarterback, or throw. And the worst of those three options is run a traditional running play with a running back. And we did that the least. I'm fine with that. I will say that running the ball three times in a row is not my particular flavor. Running the ball for this team is like a changeup in baseball. It works because it's an off-speed pitch. It works because it looks like something else and you do it sparingly. But if you do it consistently in a row, that's usually not a good idea. Both times... The Bills ran three runs in a row. They stalled out on the drive. So I wasn't a huge fan of that. But I have zero problem with the quarterback run game. In addition, the Bills did score 27 points on the Colts, which was the third highest total that anyone has scored on the Colts all year. So I'm not going to sit here and tell you that Brian Dable was a terrible play caller on Saturday. Not going to do it. There were specific things at specific times that I would have not preferred, which in this case was running the ball three times in a row, specifically traditional running plays, two out of three times or three out of three times. That I'm not in favor of. I don't think there's a lot of situations in the game where I'm cool running the ball three times in a row unless you're trying to bleed clock. So I'm not a fan of it, regardless of whether or not you picked up eight yards on the first one. Because you should know well enough to know that you get those eight yards on first down. That's great and everything. That's probably not going to happen commonly against the Colts. So it's not one of those, hey, it worked. Let's just keep doing it. Because, yeah, you got eight yards, but that's not going to happen very often against the Colts. Let's just not go back to that well too often. So again, I'm okay with not being happy about that one specific aspect. But overall, I had people in my mentions talking about how it was a complete and utter offensive coordinator Dable disaster. And I don't think that's true. I do think there is a specific thing that I'm not pleased with from that game. That one specific thing. But I'm not going to let that overshadow everything else. I'm going to criticize that one thing that I didn't like. And then I'm going to point out all the other things that I did like. Another question I got a lot was why not a lot of use of Isaiah McKenzie in the jet motion? And it's because it's the Colts. If you're going to be sitting in too high all the time, it's not going to have the same effect. I would imagine we'd see more of it this week against the Baltimore Ravens. It's just not something that has a significant effect on too high defenses. Because you already have people who are farther back from the line of scrimmage who are not responding to jet motion. And the Bills used the zone read to hold the backside defender, specifically on the goal line, rather than using Isaiah McKenzie to do it. So 
Isaiah McKenzie in the jet sweep serves the same purpose that the zone read game does, which is hold the backside defender to allow more space for the front side run to work or for you to be able to get out the backside. And if you have the same purpose being accomplished a different way, I don't have too much of a problem with it because really what matters is that the purpose got done. That part of the running game got accommodated for when it needed to be accommodated for. It was accommodated for a different way than we have historically seen it happen. The Bills don't run a lot of zone read with Josh Allen because Josh Allen isn't historically great in the zone read game. But on the goal line right there, they did it. In addition, you saw a lot of spread with quarterback draw and RPO concepts. So I don't have a lot of issue with the lack of McKenzie because they were still accomplishing similar purposes via a different method. Let's talk about defense. I didn't have a big issue with the blitzing because the blitzing to fill gaps was one of the ways that they were able to help bottle up Jonathan Taylor. So I don't have a huge issue with the blitzing. The Colts had a great game on offense and I'm not happy with the contested catches that they made in the middle of the field. I'm not happy with the fact that the bills were getting beat up on crossing routes of all sorts of depths. Colts played a great, great game. And that's one of the things that should be noted specifically when it talks about the bills defense is that the Colts had a great game. They had all the balls bounce their way except for the fumble that Josh Allen made that got recovered by Daryl Williams, and they still lost. Everything bounced the way it was supposed to bounce for the Colts, and they lost. I don't consider the refs upholding Gabe Davis's toe taps on the sidelines. I don't consider that a bounce in the Bills way because I don't think that there was enough evidence to overturn either of those things. In addition, that was absolutely a fumble at the end of the game where Jordan Poyer waited for him to get up off the ground and then punch the ball. It was absolutely a fumble. So the Colts got every opportunity and they still lost. And I think that's a really important talking point to take away from this game. Do I think that the Bills defense underperformed in this game? I do. I do think there were individual plays to be made. I think the Bills defensive line didn't do a great job of being able to get quick pressure. I understand that Phillip Rivers gets the ball out in under 2.4 seconds the vast majority of the time. But there was essentially no pressure. There was no quick wins. And sometimes you got to either get a quick win or you got to get your hands up. I understand a lot of ducks from Phillip Rivers, a lot of lob balls. But it was overall not a great day for the Buffalo Bills defense. A lot of times I found myself saying, somebody just got to make a play right now. Somebody's just got to make a play on defense. And when there was a play to be made on defense, when there was a third and long, the plays were being made by Indianapolis, not Buffalo. Individual failures. I don't think it was an overarching collapse where I can point to a specific thing in the scheme and say, that was a complete and utter failure. There were individual moments where there was an opportunity to make a play And when there was, Indianapolis made it and the Bills didn't. But let's not take away from this game anything else aside from the Bills won and moved on 
as far as projecting it to the future because the next game doesn't look anything like the last game, stylistically. The game against the Ravens we're going to talk about a lot tomorrow has basically nothing in common with the game against the Colts. Not on offense and not on defense. They are the exact opposites of each other. But the Bills had 6.8 yards per play. That's the fourth highest yards per play the Bills have had all season long. I'm not here for a total collapse from the Bills offense. I'm not here for Brian Dable called a bad game. A specific thing I didn't like? Sure, a specific thing I didn't like. But you can't walk away from the totality of the offense and say, yeah, nah, I'm not not good with it. Josh Allen accounted for 355 of the Bills' total 397 yards. In week one, which I've compared it to already, Josh Allen had 369 out of 404 yards. There were some very significant similarities in the game plan between the Bills' offense against the Colts and the Bills' offense against the Jets, week one. You know, there's going to be people who specifically pick out the dropped interception and the fumble for Josh Allen and try to tell you he didn't have a good game. Those people are wrong. Josh Allen had a very good game, and I've just outlined that he was essentially our entire offense. So if Josh Allen is the entirety of a Bills offense that scores 27 points, which we've already established is the third highest amount against a very good defense. So let's wrap your head around this. Josh Allen is the vast majority of the production of the Bills' offense against a good defense. Yes, he had a good day. Yes, the fumble is something that he shouldn't have done. Holding on to the ball there would be ideal. But I'm not here for anybody saying Josh Allen didn't have a good day. I'm just not here for it. But I heard some rumblings this particular game about the Bills defensive line. And I've made some rumblings about the Bills defensive line already. And on a guest appearance that I had on the hoof podcast on the cover one network a couple days ago, they were specifically about Ed Oliver and how much of a quote unquote bust he is. I, you know, I have defended Ed Oliver on this podcast last year. He was the best defensive tackle on this team last year. This year, unfortunately, he's being forced to play out of position and next to a player who is also playing out of position the vast majority of the time in Quentin Jefferson. But I want to draw a comparison on this podcast before we take a break. And the comparison I want to draw is between Ed Oliver and Deion Dawkins. Now that Deion Dawkins has played well, And now that Deion Dawkins has a contract extension and has played well through his contract extension thus far, we have a tendency to forget about the 2019 NFL Draft. So I'm going to remind you, in the 2019 NFL Draft, there was a large contingency of Bills Mafia who wanted to draft Jonah Williams with the Bills' first-round pick. Well, Jonah Williams is a left tackle. We already had a left tackle in Deion Dawkins. Yes, I know. They wanted to move him to guard or right tackle because they were so dissatisfied with his play. 
Now we couldn't be happier with Deion Dawkins. We're using the snowman references all over the place. We love Deion Dawkins. But that's not the case right after his second year in the league. If you remember correctly, during Deion Dawkins' first year, he had Pro Bowl left guard Richie Incognito next to him. During his second year, he had Vladimir Dukas next to him. One of the reasons for Deion Dawkins' play to drop off in his second year was that he wasn't playing next to a player who was holding up their end of the bargain and doing their job at a high level. And that applies on the offensive line. And we understand intrinsically, I think, that it applies on the offensive line. Why don't we understand it applies to defensive tackles? Why do we not think, for any smidge of a second, that having Ed Oliver not playing next to a real, productive, one-technique Instead, being forced to play a lot of one technique and playing three tech next to another three tech who's trying to play one tech. Why do we not think that would affect him? Why do we not think that that would matter as far as productivity goes? The Bills had two traditional one technique defensive tackles on their roster this offseason. Star Latulule and Harrison Phillips. Harrison Phillips is one year removed from a second nasty torn ACL and has not been overly effective this year. And Starla Tule opted out. If we think that Deion Dawkins had a slump in year two, in part, not in whole, but in part due to the lack of ability of the player playing next to him, why do we not extend that same understanding to Ed Oliver? Why is that not the case? Do we not think that having someone next to you on the defensive line for a defensive tackle matters if that person plays well or at least plays their particular position at a reasonable level? I need you to understand, we don't even have, as a Bills team, a reasonably competent one-technique defensive tackle on the roster right now. Not a single one. We do our best to kind of create this sort of hodgepodge group with Justin Zimmer and Quentin Jefferson and Ed Oliver, Vernon Butler. But there are no true, traditional, effective one techniques on this team. When Ed Oliver came out of college, the discussion was, you know, he's really out of position. I think he'd be a lot more productive if he was in a different position because putting him head up, against the center and just inviting double teams all over the place is really not really smart. We understood that about Ed Oliver coming out of college. And then all of a sudden he's got to play a lot of one technique. And when he does play three technique, there's nobody at the one tech who's commanding a ton of double teams, which means Ed Oliver now has to face them more often than he otherwise would. I'm not saying Ed Oliver faces a ton of double team. I'm saying he faces them more often than he otherwise would. In fact, the game against the Chiefs, that the Bills played, Ed Oliver played roughly half his snaps at one technique. Half. He should be playing 0% of his snaps at one technique. Unfortunately, the Bills got to do what the Bills got to do to create some sort of hodgepodge one technique defensive tackle position in the absence of any effectiveness at that level. You've got Harrison Phillips who isn't playing super well. 
And the one person you had who was playing decently opted out. So those two things send shockwaves through the remainder of the defensive line rotation, and you got to make do as best you can. I don't know at this point what the Bills' original plan was for the defensive line rotation because it's kind of weird now. I don't know if it was going to be Ed Oliver and Vernon Butler as the three techs and Quentin Jefferson was going to kind of rotate as a pass rusher in obvious specific situations and also potentially play on the edge. I don't know what the original plan was because I know that you got to do what you got to do to get by when you have one of your key cogs opt out and the person you're hoping bounces back from a knee injury ends up being fairly ineffective. And I just do not see the same level of grace being extended to Ed Oliver. And maybe I shouldn't expect that. Maybe I shouldn't expect any grace or any understanding of the context of the situation to be extended to a rookie because if he's not dominant immediately, apparently he's a bust. But we've already seen situations like Deion Dawkins occur where he had a promising rookie season, just like Ed Oliver had a promising rookie season. The back half of 2019, Ed Oliver played really well. And I was looking forward to a breakout in 2020. But you can't pretend that the players playing next to him or not playing next to him somehow doesn't have any effect on that. Because it does. In addition, even in what I would consider to be an overall less effective year for Ed Oliver, he still has more pressures this year than he had last year. Now, it should be noted he has played a little bit more as far as snaps goes this year than he did last year. But he's doing the best he can not being put in an ideal circumstance. And I'm sure that's going to be part of the narrative this offseason is getting Starla to lay back, figuring out if Harrison Phillips can be a reasonable one technique and if not, getting a different one. But I don't think we should have given up on Deion Dawkins after year two and I don't think we should give up on Ed Oliver now. Dude's a freak athlete who's playing a lot of his snaps out of position. And when he is in position, he's not playing next to someone who can help him do his job. So we've seen this movie before, Bill's Mafia. We've seen this before with Deion Dawkins. So don't miss out on the cues when you see it again, in this case, with Al Oliver. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to do plurality pie. Stick with me. We'll be right back. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. Plurality pie is ready to be dished out for the Colts-Bills game. Josh Allen, 43%. The vast majority of the offense. I've said before that I have a hard time imagining any player ever getting more than 45% on the plurality pie. Why? 
because they're not on the field. Josh Allen is not on the field for 60% of the snaps. He can't get 60% of the credit because Josh Allen doesn't have an effect on the result of a play when he's not on the field. So it's one of the reasons why wins aren't a quarterback stat. 45-45-10, offense, defense, special teams. But Josh Allen gets 43 because he's the vast majority of the production on the offensive side of the ball. 15% Stephon Diggs. Oh, bleak. Yasmin bleak. Twin peak. I don't care. Bills by a billion. That's what Stephon Diggs says. I don't care about no oblique injury. That's a game that becomes markedly more difficult to win if you don't have a go-to number one receiver. And the Bills do, thankfully. Gabe Davis, 9%. Need a toe-tap rap from him. They should just devote an entire segment in Good Morning Football on NFL Network. Not to just toe-drag swag. It's the toe-tap rap from Gabe Davis. Cole Beasley, 8%. Toughing it out. On a game that's being played where the traditional running game is not effective, having a player like Cole Beasley matters even more. And it was clearly obvious he was in pain. But he toughed it out. Micah Hyde, 6%. Two deep pass breakups. Not just, not just the Hail Mary, but also another deep pass breakup that could have been a huge play for the Colts offense. Micah Hyde is one of the best in the NFL at defending against the deep ball. So I find myself unsurprised that he was the one who ended up breaking up the Hail Mary. Tyler Bass, 5%. The better rookie kicker made a 54-yard field goal when it mattered. At the Senior Bowl, Greg Tomset, cover one, was one of the people who was down there. And he was talking about the kickers that were kicking at the Senior Bowl. And said, you know, I really think Tyler Bass was the best kicker at the Senior Bowl. Said it before the Bills drafted him. Rodrigo Blankenship got most of the discussion as being the best kicker in the draft. Mostly because of the character surrounding him. And the fact that he was from Georgia and the rec specs and things like that. And then the Patriots went out and drafted a kicker from Marshall who I had no idea was a player. But the Bills had the better rookie kicker. And that was one of the differences in the game. The fact that the Bills had a better rookie kicker than the Colts. Didn't see that one coming. But Tyler Bass has come a long way. And he deserves 5% of this credit. Daryl Williams gets 4% just for the fumble recovery. I don't think Daryl Williams had a great game. Aside from the fumble recovery. But that play was so significant. It gets 4% by itself. Because that swings a big percentage of the game other 10%. So Josh Allen, 43%, 15% Stefan Diggs, Gabe Davis, 9%, Cole Beasley, 8%, Micah Hyde, 6%, Tyler Bass, 5%, Daryl Williams, 4%, 10% other. Ladies and gentlemen, we did it. We served up a slice of plurality pie. Come back tomorrow. We will do your almighty takes and we will discuss how to crumble the cookies of the Baltimore Ravens. And until then... That's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Rockies.